Cultured Hollywood for Smart People for Tuesday, July 9th, 2019. I'm Nico. I'm your host talking movies, television, music, and so much more in a way that smart people can enjoy them. I hope your holiday weekend was fun and restful. I know mine certainly was. Let's jump right in. Lots to get to on today's podcast. Woo! We are jam-packed with pop culture goodness. Let's just start with this Taylor Swift thing, shall we? I have been dying to dig in. And I do apologize because I am a little late to the party. And that's partly because of the holiday weekend and my busy schedule. But it's also because of my general social media consumption. Like, guys, despite my youthful physique... I am a 70-year-old man trapped in a 23-year-old boy's body. That's essentially... That's how I roll. When you report pop music news to me, you might as well be speaking Klingon. It just takes a while to register. I'm just not up on what all the kids are up on these days. And although like my younger cousins and my younger sister are well aware of the drama surrounding Taylor Swift and Scooter Braun, it took a while to get to me. It took a while for the translation to finally make sense. But I think I have uh, an idea of what's happening. I think I can present an informed point of view. So let's try this. So Taylor Swift is in the news in the midst of yet another controversy because that's what Taylor does. Taylor's going to Taylor. Um, she is currently feuding with two former colleagues of hers. I'm not sure that colleague is actually the correct term. Man, I guess really they were bosses of Taylor Swift. They were in positions of power, but that relationship is still a bit unclear. Let's say for the sake of this segment, they were co-workers. These two men, Scooter Braun and Scott Borchetta. Scooter Braun, of course, is the agent behind several multi-platinum pop artists like Justin Bieber and Kanye West, a, a highly successful music mogul in his own right, and Scott Borchetta, the head of Big Machine Records, the group that signed Taylor Swift back at the age of 15 when she was but a lowly country darling. And now, uh, well, she wanted her way out of Big Machine. And that's what she got back in November. Taylor Swift decided to sign with Universal Records, and it was a fairly groundbreaking contract. I'm not sure that I discussed it at the time, but she, from now until the end of time, will maintain the rights to her recordings. That's very rarely something a studio grants their artists. Normally, when you sign with a label, they own you for many, many years, and this has led to controversies over several decades. I mean, really, this is a story as old as time, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But just a few weeks ago, Big Machine was sold to a company called Ithaca Holdings, which incidentally is owned and operated by Scooter Braun. This news sends Taylor Swift into a tizzy, and she rushes to her Tumblr page to... (laughs) express her disappointment. I got to be honest, people. I didn't know Tumblr was still a thing until this week. But man, good on Taylor, a loyal member of the Tumblr army. Good on you. I mean, this might be her her greatest contribution to pop culture in the last month. 
Taylor Swift keeping Tumblr relevant. So she writes this blog post, and I won't go through the whole thing, but she essentially says that this news is her worst-case scenario. Scooter Braun is someone who she considers to be a bully of hers, a mental manipulator, someone that has never treated her with kindness or care, but instead with total disregard. Um, She also calls out Scott Borchetta for his role in all of this. Of course, he's the one that sold Big Machine Records to Scooter Braun, in essence, selling away Taylor's entire songbook, and called the guy disloyal, saying that he knew exactly what her feelings on Scooter Braun were. Uh, The quote is, Anytime Scott Borchetta has heard the word Scooter Braun escape my lips, it was when I was either crying or trying not to. He knew what he was doing. They both did. Controlling a woman who didn't want to be associated with them in perpetuity. That means forever. So now Taylor is at a new label, hopefully happy and healthy, over at Universal. But for the time being, her previous work, all of her previous work, is now under the control of a man that she does not care for. So anytime love story or You Belong With Me is played during a Disney Channel original movie. (laughs) Scooter Braun picks up the royalty check, and Taylor Swift does not see a penny. Huh, where do we want to go with this? Well, I'll start by by saying this. Um, Taylor Swift is very wealthy. Like, more wealthy than you and I can ever dream of being, right? She's incredibly famous, She's incredibly successful, and no matter what happens behind the scenes in the boardrooms, she's going to be okay. And I am sure that many on the internet, and I'm sure many listening to this podcast, will have a hard time sympathizing with Taylor Swift, given her incredible wealth and notoriety. And I would push back on that. I'd push back on that fairly hard. I have never been one to say, sit down, shut up, and check your privilege. Like, if you're a multi-talented recording artist that produces a product that means something to hundreds of millions of people, I, Nico DiGregorio, am not in a position to determine your value. Does that make sense? This goes across the board. Taylor Swift, Kanye West, NBA players, NFL quarterbacks... Get your money. I'm a firm believer in getting your money. And by the way, it is not the public or the team owner or the record executive that determines what your value is. The market determines what your value is. And you should exploit the market to the best of your ability because that's capitalism. That determines what your value is. So look, I don't blame Taylor for trying to get her songbook back. I don't blame her. I would be upset too. Even if I was a multi-millionaire and one of the most famous pop stars on the planet, I would still want the rights to my own music. And I would certainly want to cash a check every time someone played my music. So I don't blame her on either front, on an artistic level or on an entrepreneurial level. Like, get your money if you can get it. Now, that's not to say that what Big Machine did, what... Scooter Braun did was illegal. Like, Taylor signed a contract. 
They're allowed to sell if they want to sell. This is totally above the board. So I guess I feel bad for Taylor, sort of. Look, Big Machine is allowed to sell their label. Taylor Swift is allowed to be upset about it. And the fact that she's rich doesn't disqualify her from feeling that way. Make sense? All right. Point number two. The story of record executives fucking over their artists is as old as time. This is like an Aesop fable, people. (laughs) This is Goldilocks and the Three Bears. This is Hansel and Gretel. This is the fucking Bible. Go back to the book of Genesis. People have been doing this on the seventh day. God fucked Adam out of royalty checks. Like... This happens. How many stories about record executives like (laughs) making artists angry come out a year? This is par for the course, man. Sorry, Taylor. This shit happens all the time. Like Michael Jackson was notorious for this. There was this story back in 1985, right after Thriller came out. Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney, they were really tight. Like, I think was yeah the girl is mine was a was on thriller right so paul mccartney featured on michael jackson's album the two were very close 1985 the beatles song catalog goes up for bid apple records was selling and michael jackson outbid his good friend paul mccartney for the rights to paul mccartney's own songs and it was a huge feud and it led to a major rift in their relationship, and I don't think it was ever repaired. But, like, it happens. In fact, I think Paul McCartney did this very same thing to Buddy Holly's song catalog. Of course, Buddy Holly died at a very early age. But, like, famous figures, famous music moguls, and sometimes recording artists will buy music that other people wrote. And make money off the royalty checks and like Dems to breaks. It's business. You signed a contract. That's what happens. You know? So um, it's nothing new. This is what is happening to Taylor is nothing unique. Now, she does detail in her Tumblr post exactly what the offer was to buy her music back herself. Scott Borchetta, I guess, offered her a seven year contract. This was detailed. The the, sort of the details of this are a little murky because I guess Borchetta put up a blog post on the Big Machine website and Taylor put up the Tumblr post. And I don't think they really contradict each other. I think there are just holes in both of their stories. But from what we understand, it was going to be a seven to 10 year contract. Taylor would have to remain with the label, could not explore other options. And she would earn back one of her previous albums every time she produced a new one. So she's coming out with an album, I guess, in August. If that had been released under the Big Machine label, she would have earned back, I guess, her first record. And so forth and so on. So it creates this cycle. She She's working for her rights, essentially. It's kind of like indentured servitude. Like, yeah, you can have your songbook, but not for a price, but instead for labor, which is worth much more when she's Taylor Swift and she's a 
you know, incredibly famous pop star and big draw for your label. So I get it. Like that is not an offer that would tickle my fancy if I'm Taylor Swift. And she also says in the blog post that she knew Scott Borchetta was going to sell the company at some point, and she did not want to be under contract for the next 10 years under management that she was not familiar with. So she declined the offer, decided to go on her own merry way. Uh, But then says when the offer was made to Scooter Braun and the deal was finalized, she didn't hear about it until the news broke publicly, and it was, uh, yeah, it was very difficult for her emotionally. And of course... Borchetta fired back on his own blog post, posting text messages that Taylor sent to him, wishing him well in his future endeavors, uh, respectfully passing on Big Machine's offer, and uh, I guess ending on a on a cordial note. But who's to say? And that's really the central thrust of this entire controversy. Someone is lying here. Because Taylor claims that she was totally blindsided by this deal, that she would have made a greater effort to buy back her songbook if she knew that Scooter Braun was in the running for it. And Scott Borchetta says, nah, this was all out in the open. We kept Taylor abreast to every move, every machination. In fact, her father, Scott Swift, is a shareholder in Big Machine Records, He was told that the company was being sold before the deal happened, five days before it happened. He had ample time to tell his daughter about the sale. There's no way that she was caught off guard by this. And also, by the way, she never cried anytime I brought up Scooter Braun's name. It was not my experience. I had no idea that Taylor had such a contentious relationship with the guy. And had I known their history, had I known how ugly the relationship had gotten, perhaps I wouldn't have sold the company. So someone's making something up. And that's when Twitter comes in. And I want to shout out, by the way, a woman that is doing God's work. A woman by the name of Courtney Soliday. And she has done more than enough to earn my follow on Twitter this week. Courtney Soliday, I don't know, is she just like an independent pop culture journalist? Yeah, she only has like 6,000 followers, but she has been um, studiously tracking where a number of Hollywood celebrities fall in this controversy because people are taking sides. Like a line is drawn in the sand and you're either on Team Taylor or Team Scooter. And it's about a 50-50 split, I guess. Like, I know, for example, Iggy Azalea took to Twitter and said, hashtag stand with Taylor, we stand with Taylor, because she claims that these business dealings, these mergers, these acquisitions take months and months and months to go through. So to warn Taylor five days before the, the, the paperwork was signed is not really giving her ample time. Cara Delevingne... Cardi B, Selena Gomez, I guess all on Team Taylor. And uh, Courtney Soliday has this incredible flowchart explaining (laughs) who and why. Miley Cyrus is another one. But then you have Team Scooter, 
with some pretty high-profile names. Usher. Olivia Munn, for some reason. Tori Kelly. (laughs) NBA player Chris Paul. I'm not kidding. And, of course, some of Scooter's clients. Demi Lovato. Justin Bieber. And another guy that we often talk about on this podcast. Yeah, let's take a trip back in the time machine because there's one more important element to this story. And man, (laughs) it always comes back to this fool, doesn't it? It always comes back to the actions, the unorthodox antics of one of our favorite men on the planet. Remember this little number? I don't blame you much for wanting to be free. I just wanted you to know. Swiss only let the beat rock. Southside niggas that know me best I feel like me and Taylor might still have sex Why? I made that bitch famous God damn. I made that bitch famous For all the girls that got dick from Kanye West if you see All comes back to Kanye <laughs> all, lead, uh, all roads lead to Kanye As, uh, as Caesar once said <laughs> Yeah, this is all Kanye's fault, turns out Because back in the day, when The Life of Pablo was released to great fanfare, this song, Famous, drew some controversy. Kanye specifically called out Taylor Swift, saying, Hey, bitch, I made you famous when I stormed the stage at the MTV Music Awards, saying Beyonce had the greatest music video of all time. Yeah, this is what this is about. So Taylor claims back in 2016 that she did not know this lyric was coming, that she did not know a nude version of herself would be featured in the famous music video on YouTube, and she says this is only one aspect of the mental and emotional bullying that she's experienced at the hands of Kanye West and his manager at the time, Scooter Braun. But then you know what happens. Kim Kardashian steps in and posts this little doozy on her Snapchat account. A phone call between Taylor Swift and her hubby, Kanye West. Okay, dope. You, you, still, got, you still got the Nashville uh, number? I still have the Nashville um, area code, but I had to change it. For all my Southside niggas that know me best, I feel like me and Taylor might still have sex. Oh, well, this this one is, uh, I think this is a really cool thing to have. Uh, thing to have. Uh, I know, it's like a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> what I give a fuck about is just you as a person and as a friend. I want things that That's make sweet. you feel good. I don't want to do rap that makes people feel bad. I feel I just have a responsibility to you as a friend, you know, and uh, I mean, thanks. For, uh, I mean, 
thanks for being like so cool about it. Yeah, so that's that. Um, so, um, yeah, Taylor knew the line was coming and was very supportive and thanked Kanye for the heads up. And this outrage was totally feigned. And there's Kim with the receipts, brings the evidence to social media. And Taylor does not look like such a good guy here. And this is really the crux of this entire controversy. Because three years after the fact, Taylor is still claiming victimhood in this whole debacle. Um, On her Tumblr page, the featured art for this blog post is a screenshot of an Instagram post from Justin Bieber back in 2016. And it's this screenshot of Bieber, Kanye, and Scooter Braun on a FaceTime call with the caption, Taylor Swift, what up? As sort of a... I don't know, spit in the face. Na 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 na. You look stupid on Snapchat and we won. And uh, you know, he deleted it right after the fact, and Bieber himself admitted that it was a childish joke at the time. But he said that Scooter Braun is not at fault. He was one of the voices of reason back in twenty sixteen. He even told Bieber at the time, let the girl off the hook. Like, don't be mean, don't post that. But he did it anyway. Um, here's the bottom line. Three years ago, Taylor cried wolf. She cried wolf. She played the victim and she lost. And now we find ourselves in the same position. It's Taylor's word against someone else's. And that someone else happens to have the support of several high profile stars, credible character witnesses. And Taylor has a blog post says, this guy hurt my feelings. It's not fair what happened to me. Ugh. Look, I want to give people the benefit of the doubt. I do my best to give all people on this podcast the benefit of the doubt. And as I just described, I think it is totally fair. It is Taylor's sole prerogative if she wants to try to earn her music back. And she is right to be a little PO'd. However, however, you cried wolf three years ago. Why should we believe you now? That's the problem when with PR, man. Like, the idea that all publicity is good publicity is not always right. Like, sometimes you build your reputation on lies and deceit, and these are the consequences. Now, I don't necessarily want to characterize all of Taylor's actions as deceitful, they weren't all lies per se. I guess I would describe her characterization of events as exaggerations of the truth, if not total untruths altogether. I'll at least be that fair. I'm sure the way that she has portrayed herself is similar to the way that she views herself, and her recollection of events is fairly accurate to how she remembers them. But, but... This is still theater. This is still fake victimhood for the sake of publicity and credibility. And homie, I don't play that. Sorry, you're never going to get sympathy out of me. You cried wolf back in 2016. You played the victim and you were caught red-handed. And so now what? 
good luck with the upcoming album, I guess. I'm sure this news cycle will have done wonders for sales. So good on you, Taylor. <laughs> this is cultured. We're going to take a quick break when we come back. Uh, man, so much more from the world of pop culture. And I have somewhere to be pretty soon. So we have to get going. Please stick around. Please. I beg of you. We're coming right back. So I saw Spider-Man Far From Home over the weekend, and I'm not sure if I'm going to do a review with Adam Hall or not. I don't think he's seen it yet. So we may do a movie hopping this week, and I'll give my extensive thoughts. But I'll just give a a quick review here, and I won't spoil anything. Well, actually, no, I will spoil something. I lied. Okay, spoilers for Spider-Man Far From Home are coming. Check the show notes. That'll give you some timestamps. Uh, it'll give you when the next segment starts. So if you just want to skip over this, come back to it later after you've seen Spider-Man. Uh, just check the timestamps. Hopefully they're accurate and you'll avoid all spoilers. So spoilers for Spider-Man starting right now. Okay. I like the movie. In fact, I really like the movie. I think I like Spider-Man Far From Home better than Spider-Man Homecoming. And that is such a pleasant surprise because I really liked Homecoming. And in general, I really like the direction the MCU is going in. And I can't believe I'm saying this right now. I don't know what's happened to me. Is this a product of Marvel just getting better at this shit? Or me letting down my defenses? I can't tell. Because yeah, after 22, 23 installments, whatever the hell they're on now, I do think Marvel is getting better at this. They have a keener understanding of the tone, the spirit, the rhythm of these movies, They understand these characters better than they ever had, and they also understand what their brand is, what audiences expect out of them, and how to maximize audience pleasure in a two-hour window. So yeah, they're better at it because they've done it a lot. But I also think, just personally, I've given in to this story, Stockholm Syndrome style, you know, I just... It's sort of that feeling when you're binge-watching a television show. And it's kind of funny because Marvel has become a television show. And it's a more popular television show than Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage. This is actually what Marvel is built for. Two and a half hour long, expensive TV episodes. Each installment feels much like the last. It adds a little bit in the realm of character. It doesn't do much to disrupt the status quo. But people keep watching because they're addicted to the feeling of more. And, like, it's, it feels very similar. Going to Spider-Man Homecoming, or Far From Home, felt very similar to, like, approaching season three of Mad Men. It's like, yeah, not much happens in every episode. Each one feels relatively similar, but I just love hanging out with these characters. I just love this story. I love this vibe. So keep bringing me more. I don't want it to end anytime soon. That's the stage that I personally have hit with the MCU. I've just given in. Endgame was an incredibly fun ride, an incredibly emotional ride for me. And Spider-Man was just like more of the same. I love hanging out with Peter Parker in high school. I love hanging out with Zendaya and Marissa Tomei and Nick Fury it's just dope, man. It's just it's just a blast. And I do love, again, 
like how loyal to the teen comedy subgenre Tom Watts is, the director of Spider-Man Homecoming and Far From Home. He is legitimately making John Hughes homages. This feels very much like 16 Candles, very much like The Breakfast Club, very much like Ferris Bueller. And I just love how like the first 20 minutes of this movie was spent with these kids touring Europe, hanging out in Venice, getting in wacky adventures. Peter is afraid to tell MJ his feelings and there's a lot of awkward teen drama and it's all very relatable and fun and it's just a the perfect tone for something like this. It's just the perfect small scale installment of what is an incredibly sprawling space epic. You know, the MCU has gotten so big, it was so nice to just settle down and go to junior prom. You know what I mean? I dug that element. I also enjoyed the villain. I thought Jake Gyllenhaal was a blast. He was having a very good time. Um, It's a little bit of a spoiler to call him a villain, and I sort of hoped that the trailers didn't allude to the fact that Mysterio was the bad guy after all, because it's like a third act reveal. Um, But I think Marvel is solving its villain problem. It's on a run of like three to four very good villains, You have Thanos in Endgame and Infinity War. You have Kurt Russell in Guardians 2. You have Killmonger, played by Michael B. Jordan in Black Panther. I think they have listened to audience criticisms and they've adjusted accordingly because they're just casting really fun, engaging, charismatic people in their villain roles. And it's sort of nice to see both the hero and villain equally represented on screen. So it's awesome. And, like, not to mention the fact that this movie becomes a surreal sci-fi adventure at the hour mark. It's literally a John Hughes comedy fused with The Matrix. And I'm always going to be game for that. I thought the scene where Mysterio sent Peter through the illusions in the warehouse was remarkable. It was remarkable. It rivaled, as a matter of fact, some of the stuff we saw in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. The excellent animated movie. Here's my point. I just want like 20 more Spider-Man movies. Forget the whole Avengers thing. Forget Doctor Strange. Forget the Hulk. Forget Thor. Let's just hang out with Spider-Man. I love it. I have such a good time. I will say this though. And this is not necessarily unexpected, but it is nonetheless the case. The movie doesn't have a lot to offer in the physical stakes department. And it's fine because Avengers Endgame happened and Tony Stark died. And much of this movie is picking up the pieces that Thanos caused at the end of Avengers Endgame. And Peter is in the shadow of Tony throughout this entire movie. He is wondering whether or not he is worthy of assuming the Iron Man mantle and the pressure gets to him. And that's a lot of the emotional thrust. And I appreciate all that. But in terms of consequence, like actual consequence, the movie ends exactly how it started. Except this time, Peter has a girlfriend. Until the end credits roll. And this is what I find so fascinating. Help me get to the bottom of this for a second. Okay? Had I told you, I don't know, 10 to 15 years ago, There's a new Spider-Man movie coming to theaters. It's not going to be directed by Sam Raimi. It's not going to star Tobey Maguire. 
But audiences are going to love it. It's going to make a lot at the box office. Critics are going to respond positively. And Twitter, I know you don't know what it is yet, but Twitter is going to be a buzz. But they're not going to be talking about the actual movie. Instead, they're going to be obsessed with the two scenes that played after the credits. And by the way, that's what 95% of the dialogue on social media has been this week. The two post-credit sequences. Had I told you this back in 2004, you would have called me insane. But in a very short period of time, and we're talking 10 to 15 years, us moviegoers have become conditioned to stick around for 10 minutes of credits and consume those post-credit sequences with a watchful eye. That's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. Especially since credits are longer now than they've ever been. It is more of a time commitment than ever in the history of Hollywood filmmaking. You know how many special effects coordinators work on Marvel movies? How many engineers, sound guys, grips, extras, composers? You've seen those names because you stick around after all those Marvel movies. It is a chore. But we stick around with the promise that what's ever coming is more exciting than the movie we just watched. It baffles my mind. But I'm a part of it. I'm a part of this problem. Or I guess I'm a part of this evolution. And what does that say about us? You know, it sort of reminds me of how the NBA is being consumed these days. I was thinking about this because free agency just wrapped up, quote unquote. And there was a lot of chaos um, during that first week of the free agency period. Kevin Durant, Jimmy Butler, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, D'Angelo Russell, Anthony Davis, all these guys switch teams. And so now the league is turned completely on its head. No one has any idea who's going to win the title next year. It's this thrilling prospect. The future is bright for the NBA. This has dominated this free agency talk, these business machinations, this boardroom discussion has dominated the NBA news cycle for the past year and a half. Like this was presented at a very early date as the most exciting free agency period the league has ever seen. And so this excitement and this hype greatly affected how the media covered basketball this past season. And it also affected how audiences consumed basketball this past season. So for example, the main question on people's minds was not, will Kevin Durant win a championship with the Golden State Warriors? The main question was, will Kevin Durant still be on the Warriors next season or will he choose to sign with another team? The stuff off the court was more intriguing than the stuff on the court. And it feels like, to me, audience members and the media both agree. Like, 20-year-olds are no longer interested in watching basketball games. The games are no longer the most interesting part of the NBA. They see some highlights on Twitter. They follow Instagram beefs. And they follow free agency. And the idea of Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant playing together on the Brooklyn Nets 
is more exciting than actually watching Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant play together on the Brooklyn Nets. Because potential is always more interesting than the results. That's the trend in basketball. And I feel like, unfortunately, that is a growing trend in cinema. Especially with these big blockbuster movies. The stuff of highest consequence came after Spider-Man Far From Home ended. And that just doesn't feel right to me. Peter Parker's identity was exposed to the world in an addendum. J. Jonah Jameson, played by J.K. Simmons, makes his return to the Spider-Man franchise in an addendum. And then, I guess, I'm sorry guys, I didn't stick around for the final credit sequence. Sue me. I'm sorry. It was 1.30 at night. I didn't want to stick around for 10 minutes just to get a tease of the next Doctor Strange movie. I have a life, people. <laughs> but evidently, that second post-credit sequence was just as consequential. We learned that Sam Jackson and the chick from How I Met Your Mother are not actually Nick Fury and whatever the hell her name is. Instead, <laughs> Maria Hill, I guess is her name. Instead, those were two... Cree soldiers or is it Skrull I can't remember <laughs> Captain Marvel was a total blur to me apparently that was Ben Mendelsohn's character posing as Sam Jackson and Sam Jackson is actually in outer space healing his wounds I don't know apparently that means something for the future of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and people are all in a tizzy about it um okay cool why do I gotta wait 20 minutes for that seems like a pretty big revelation these two characters that we were following this entire movie are not actually those characters. Maybe don't bury that at the end of your credits? I don't know. Call me old-fashioned. Generally, when I end a story, it's over. And the audience knows it's over. But I guess Marvel doesn't operate that way. Look, I have mixed feelings about it because I really did like that Jonah Jameson segment. I love that they turned J.K. Simmons into Alex Jones. It's such a, a perfect adaptation of that character because he was such an over-the-top goofball in the early 2000s, and now that newspapers are dead and characters like that are like more prominent than ever, yes, he would be hosting a conspiracy theory web program. Yes, he is exactly like Alex Jones. Perfect. Perfect, perfect, perfect. And it was quite funny, and it was a great cameo, and I love that performance. But also, I would have liked to have seen Peter's identity revealed either at the end of this movie or the beginning of the next movie, not as a teaser for the sake of publicity and buzz. That kind of bothers me. It feels exploitative. It feels like you're using me. Maybe they have the right to do that. I don't know. Uh, in terms of this, this second one, I, I'm just not willing to stick around that long. And it really bothers me that the stuff of consequence is being added there. I just think like, I don't know, this is the way that the world is going. We live in a social media culture. We are defined by what is next. The future is always brighter than the present. And that's how you build a brand on the internet. Like that trailer for Mulan just dropped a few days ago. I have no need for a Mulan live action reboot. 
It, it does not interest me one iota, but I watch that trailer because that is the economy of movie going. It's trailers, it's hype, it's buzz, it's pre-existing IP. So it is certainly Marvel's prerogative to tease whatever is next and to use that precious real estate to sell their next product. Cool. Just not really movie going for me. It's not really filmmaking. It's just a marketing ploy. And then again, like, you know, they're short snippets. They're easy to consume. There is something about the economy of those scenes, how concise they are, that I think is very appealing to the young people. Um, And there are plenty of young people that love the Marvel movies that I know in my personal life that just go for those end credit sequences. Who knows? Like, I watch NBA games. I... I sit down and watch movies. But the internet doesn't feel the same way. And that's okay. These times, they are a-changing. Wow, we have some breaking news. Just pulled up my iPad. Okay, well, this is happening. All right, should we do this now? Yeah, let's... Well, okay, let's take a break, and let me just read this quick article. And then we'll come back and talk about HBO Max, which was just announced today. You'll hear all about it after this break. It's cultured. Stick around. All right. As I just said, this is breaking news as I record this podcast. Um, My reaction will not be as polished as normal, but that'll make it more fun. Here's the headline from Variety.com. Friends to leave Netflix for Warner Media's HBO Max streaming service. In 2020, yes, HBO Max is the name of Warner Media's upcoming streaming service. Will launch sometime in spring of 2020 with some 10,000 hours of content, including all episodes of the 90s hit Friends. It was also announced that each episode of The Fresh Prince of Bel Air, Pretty Little Liars, and the Greg Berlanti catalog which includes shows like Arrow, The Flash, Riverdale, and Blindspot, will also be moving to the platform. Um, And I would anticipate that a lot more talent will hop on along the way. Reese Witherspoon also signed on to produce movies. So there's Reese playing the field. Apple just announced her as part of their Apple TV platform, and now she's going to be a part of HBO Max. Here's what I find kind of interesting. So obviously everyone is... Jumping into the streaming business, this is no surprise. We just talked about The Office leaving Netflix last week. It was just bought back by NBC Universal as they launched their platform at the beginning of 2020. Um, so this was going to happen. This was inevitable. As soon as AT&T bought HBO last year, uh, it was only a matter of time. The slate will include programs, of course, from Warner Brothers, New Line, DC Entertainment, CNN, TNT, TBS, True TV, The CW, Turner Classic Movies, Cartoon Network, Adult Swim, Crunchyroll, Rooster Teeth, and Looney Tunes. So it's a big library. I do find it kind of interesting that it's called HBO Max, though. And this sort of represents a shift in AT&T's thinking, because for the longest time, HBO was considered a prestige brand, and I still think it is considered a prestige brand. If a show was on HBO, that meant it was most likely rated TVMA, 
had a lot of swear words, a lot of boobs, was aimed at an adult audience, did very well for critics, did very well for audiences, did very well at the Emmys. And that's allowed HBO a lot of leeway in terms of pricing. Because we know their catalog is not as large and not as diverse as something like Netflix or something like NBC or even something like Hulu. But the HBO brand is premium adult content. They only produce the best of the best. And adults in search of premium content should have to pay a premium price for it. And I personally bought that. I pay 15 bucks a month for Hulu because I got to watch Game of Thrones, got to watch Euphoria, got to watch Chernobyl, got to watch Veep. It's interesting now that it's being positioned as an over-the-top streaming service meant for all audiences. You know, this no longer feels like the HBO that I grew up with. If Friends and Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and Pretty Little Liars carry with them the HBO Max brand? I'm not so sure what it says about the HBO network. It's just interesting to me that now HBO is for the people. Now it's for the kids. Now it's for the teenagers. It's going to affect the pricing. Now, again, the pricing has not been announced. Warner Media is playing coy with that, and I don't blame them. Um, it's still very early on in the process. But I'll be very interested to see if this is going to organically fit into the HBO Go subscription, um, if it's going to be its own thing, is it going to be more than 15 bucks a month? How are they going to do this? Because it's a shift. It's a titanic shift. And I know that many in the organization, when the merger went down, were skeptical of AT&T's leadership. The head of AT&T at one point said that they're going to push HBO to make more content to keep up with Netflix. And that means that they're going to have to be a little less selective about what makes it to air. And that was concerning because HBO was always about quality and never about quantity. It may just be a name. This may just be an issue of branding. I could be talking semantics, but I'm not sure I am. This might be a little more significant. Um, Again, though, this is a big loss for Netflix. They're losing friends. They're losing the office in 2020 going to be a big hit. It's just more pressure to produce good content. I don't think it's going to be that much of a of a disaster for them. I don't know how many people subscribe to Netflix just for The Office and just for Friends. But at a certain point, like the barrier is going to break and Netflix is going to be forced to I think just solely operate out of their own pocket. They're going to have to make everything by themselves because everyone's making a streaming service. It's, it's, the time is here. The apocalypse is now, Netflix. And I'm not sure they have something even in the realm of Friends or The Office from a popularity point of view. Obviously, I was going to talk about this as a matter of fact today and then this breaking news hit. Um, Netflix has been boasting about their Stranger Things ratings. And obviously, Stranger Things is a very popular show. I don't think it's as popular as Game of Thrones. I don't think it was as popular as The Sopranos. and like I don't think it's that much of a phenomenon. But Netflix is gloating about it on their social media, saying it was one of the most watched programs over four days in the history of the company. Um, 
I'll, I'll say it right. Yeah, here it is. Stranger Things 3 is breaking Netflix records. 40.7 million household accounts have been watching the show since its July 4th global launch, more than any other film or series in its first four days. And 18.2 million have already finished the entire season. Maybe. Maybe. Netflix is very selective about its ratings because they have felt, rightfully so, that they don't have to play by everyone else's rules. Nielsen does not track their numbers. There is no central body that is comparing Netflix viewership to HBO and Showtime. So it's all self-reported. And they can spin the facts as much as they want to fit their narrative. Who knows what state they're in? Who knows how this is going to affect their business? We will see in 2020. My gut is they'll be okay, but I haven't seen the numbers. And none of us have. So who the hell knows? Huh. HBO Max coming in 2020, spring of 2020. We shall see. We shall see. Man, this just took up a lot of show now. Oh, my. Well, then. Okay. Well, let me just hit a few little things because I have to go. By the way, I have to... Uh, I have to take care of that stop sign violation tonight. <laughs> I'm going to court. If you haven't listened to the Nico show, do yourselves a favor. Listen to that podcast. You can hear all about that debacle. And I'll update you as soon as I have more information. All right. Quick couple things. Mad Magazine coming to an end. The iconic magazine that has been around since the 50s is closing its doors. It leaves America in a time when magazines have never been more unpopular, but sophomoric humor aimed at teenage boys has never been more popular. So, Bon Voyage, Mad Magazine. Uh, I was never personally a fan, but we must pay homage to its contributions for good or for ill. It is certainly an institution, a relic of another era, and it deserves our respect and our salutations. Hey, you don't fuck with the Jesus. Nobody fucks with the Jesus. <laughs> the Jesus rolls is actually happening. Wow. Slated for an early 2020 release. The Jesus rolls. Directed by and starring John Turturro as his character from The Big Lebowski is, uh, is coming out. It is happening. It was formerly known as Going Places, based on a French novel. It stars Bobby Cannavale, John Hamm, Susan Sarandon, Pete Davidson, and as I said to Turo, I texted Adam Hall this news yesterday because we're both huge Big Lebowski fans and Coen Brothers fans in general. And I should probably just uh, quote him directly. Because <laughs> he actually sent me the teardrop emoji. After I sent him this news. I don't think he knew it was in production. I had known that this project was in and out of the works for a while. So it wasn't like shocking news to me. But Adam Hall was certainly caught off guard. Here's what he says. I feel like my wife just told me we're having a baby. It's that equal balance of ecstatic but scared shitless. And then I texted him back. And you're also contemplating abortion. And that's exactly. That's exactly what this is. Like, hell yeah, The Big Lebowski is getting a sequel. 
But oh no, The Big Lebowski is getting a sequel and the Coens aren't involved. And of course, I'm going to see it opening night, but I might hate myself afterwards. Who the hell knows? I feel the exact same way as Adam. I am like not even cautiously optimistic. I'm going in with just the lowest expectations you can imagine. And I am not going to be disappointed by this movie. You got me, Totoro? I will not be let down by you. Not this time. You're not standing me up at the altar. I'm going in. I'm going to expect a pile of shit. And if it's not a pile of shit, it'll be the greatest day of my life. The Jesus Rolls coming in 2020. And finally, happy 30th anniversary, 30th birthday to my favorite television show of all time, Seinfeld. You know, I've seen countless Seinfeld homages on pop culture blogs and on Twitter. These stupid sites like Vulture and EW are counting down their 10 favorite Seinfeld episodes, their favorite Seinfeld moments, the the most iconic lines. And it's it just dawned on me this week that Seinfeld has become a parody of itself. It's just a caricature. It's a relic of the 90s. And it's sort of shocking because I think it's aged remarkably well. I think like you could show Seinfeld to 13-year-old kids and they would still enjoy it. But I just don't think the media treats it in the same way. Um, Seinfeld is so much more than the soup Nazi. It's so much more than the puffy shirt. It's so much more than the Junior Mint or Elaine's crappy dance or the parking garage episode. Like, it is more than the iconography. It's a legitimately great sitcom. And it is the most important American sitcom of all time. And I can make a very compelling argument that it is the greatest television series to ever grace airwaves. But we don't think of it like that. We think of it as a fairly amusing, goofy, zany, character-based show with a funny theme song in the 90s. And it's so much more than that. And I wish some of these think pieces, some of these blog posts, some of these tributes, as well-intentioned as they may be, tried a little harder to capture the genius of Seinfeld. Because that show is more than its iconography. It's a rumination on life. It's a specific comedic point of view. And it redefined the language of television for decades to follow. 30 years later, many American sitcoms are still inspired by the rhythm, the language, and the tone of Seinfeld. And I know personally, in my life, no show has captured the way I talk about the world and the way that I analyze and think about the world in the way that Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David did back in the 90s. Truly. Like, that's me. It will speak to me in a way that no other show is ever capable of speaking to me. And uh, look, I have no doubt that those writing their 30th anniversary tributes have love for the show in their heart. But it's more. It's more. And we need to preserve that show and remember its true greatness. Uh, All right. Rest in peace to Cameron Boyce. I didn't know who this guy was, I, I admit, but it is such a tragic story and I would feel bad if I did not at least bring it up he's a disney channel star was in grown-ups the movie along with uh jesse which is a show that my sister really liked so she knew who this guy was 
and was very upset when the news broke. Just a tragic death at the age of 20. Seizure in his sleep, I guess? Ugh. What a bummer. Cameron Boyce. So sorry. Died so young. Condolences to his family. All right. That is going to do it for this edition of Cultured. I have to go to court, but I will be back next week with more Hollywood entertainment pop culture goodness. Please come back then. Give us a follow on all the platforms, social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Subscribe, rate, review our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or just on the website, toomanythoughtsmedia.com, tmt.media for short. So much great content continues to flood in on that site, including two new shows, hashtag Get Blurted and Fantasy Book of the Month, available on the site right now for your streaming pleasure. Until next time, though, I do hope that you come back. Because you know what happens then. We talk Taylor Swift. We talk HBO Max. We talk Spider-Man. And you and I get culture!